Everybody, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. I'm super glad you're here uh, to worship with us. If you're new, I'll be in the foyer afterwards. I'd love to greet you and get to know you a little bit. So uh, we are studying in the book of Ephesians as a church uh, this winter and spring. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, if you thought service started a half hour late this morning, welcome, turn your clock ahead. This isn't the nine o'clock service, just thought I could put that out there. Ben actually had a great line last service. He thinks we should move daylight savings times to Monday at four o'clock in the afternoon, and then it jumps to five, and then you go home, right? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Why don't, we, why don't we just do that? So we'll just get that started here. We'll just say the whole idea started in Iowa City, and it'll go global, so it'll be awesome. So that was a great idea. So, and uh, what we're doing um, is uh, we're going to study the book of Ephesians, and it's been a great book for us to be in as a church. If I could just kind of catch you up on where we've been, the first three chapters, it's a, it's a book of six chapters, and the first three chapters are just loaded with some profound truth about the blessings that God pours into our lives when we have a relationship with Jesus. Things like we are adopted into the family of God and we have been saved by the grace of God. And so chapters one to three just load you up with some great things to cling to and to realize how fortunate, how blessed we are to be in Christ, to have a relationship with Jesus. And then an interesting turn happens in chapter four. So the last three chapters talk about how to live out of your new identity. And that whole section starts with a phrase, walk in a manner worthy um, of, of Christ, of the life that you've been given. So walk means your lifestyle. What does your life look like? Are you living like the truths of chapters one through three? And so it hits some very practical areas. And in the middle of chapter four, it raises this concept of putting off the old ways in which we used to live. And now with our identity in Christ, there are new ways uh, that we are to live. And this morning, it's going to talk about a couple of really interesting uh, topics. I'm going to talk about being able to imitate God, being imitators of God as we are loved by him and his family. And then a couple other things, it's going to say that we are to walk in love. And then it'll make an interesting kind of twist and talk about sexuality for a few minutes, and then we'll circle back, and towards the end, we'll talk about walking in light. So I threw the sexuality thing out there to keep you awake. You've had a less hour's sleep, and so that's coming. But that's kind of where this passage will take us. And if you're newer to Parfum, you notice uh, that we read the Bible every week, and we study the Bible. We're not listening to what Doug thinks or what Wade thinks or, or Thomas, whoever's up here. Like, we want to know what God thinks. And the Bible is God's, um, it's God's word. He speaks to us. He teaches us who he is. He teaches us who we are, and then he gives us instructions or encouragements about how to live our lives. He's a good God that wants our lives to flourish, and the way that happens is when we study and apply his word. So that's what we're doing here for the next uh, chunk of time. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this, this amazing passage. Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege. I echo what Ben said. Uh, we, we love this church. Thank you so much for the privilege it is to be a pastor here. Uh, thank you for the privilege now even of getting to teach your word and just to realize what's happening here, that the God of creation has spoken to his people through his word. And so I pray I would stay out of the way, that your words would encourage and challenge uh, and, and, and bring direction uh, to your people today. And so there's some parts of this that are over my head. And so God, would you be the teacher? And would I just be faithful to say what you've said and uh, help us listen and put this to practice because you're a good God and you want to see us flourish. And um, so help us do that. Help us listen and obey. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, so Ephesians 
chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to start. I want to talk to you about somebody first. A lot of you have heard of the actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Some have said one of the greatest actors in our generation. He's won three Academy Awards. And he didn't take many roles. If you look at his career, he was very selective. But one thing he was known for is that the roles that he would take, he would throw himself into 100%. Like he was in a movie called My Left Foot where he played um, a person with disability. And so for months before playing that role, he lived among people with cerebral palsy. And even when he went for the first reading, when he was auditioning for the position, he came in in a wheelchair. And kind of throughout the whole filming, he lived in a wheelchair. He threw himself completely into that, the role he was playing. One time he played a role of a 1800s frontiersman in The Last of the Mohicans. And so to prepare for that one, he actually lived on a 3,000 acre patch of land out in the wilderness and lived off the land. Like what he would kill, he would eat. And he would learn to skin stuff and build fires and cook it and load a rifle and do it. He wanted all those scenes in his movie to look super authentic. So he actually poured himself into that. But one of his most famous roles was when he played Lincoln. And he spent three years reading over a hundred books on Abraham Lincoln. And even during the filming of the movie, he stayed in character. And he insisted that everybody refer to him as Mr. Lincoln. Like totally into this role. That's what he was famous for. And so they asked him to describe what is that like? To totally throw yourself into becoming another person. And he says that you know yourself in a completely different way. I didn't cease to be me, but it was me studying another person so that I could talk like he talked and live like he lived. This very first command we're going to read is to be imitators of God. Look at verse 1, and that's exactly the concept that an actor is kind of showing us today. This is what God's inviting us to do, to, to not necessarily change who we are, but now we are somebody oriented around the teaching and the life of someone else. Uh, Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. How's that for a command? Okay, hey, just go imitate God. Just go do that, right? And so one thing I want to capture right away is that the gospel is put on full display here. Please notice it doesn't say imitate God, like do the best you can. And if you hit the right score on the imitating God scale, then you will become his beloved child. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the other way around. And that's been the message of the whole book of Ephesians is that chapter two, like we were dead in our sins. Like we had nothing to offer God, but God was full of mercy and grace and he made us alive together in Christ. And so, and so we are loved. We are welcomed into this family. Chapter one even said we are adopted into God's family. So as adopted children in God's family, now imitate our father, like be imitators of God. It's so crucial to get that together. It doesn't make any sense to us, but that's the gospel. You are loved. You are welcomed into the family. Now, let's be imitators of God. The, the first verb there, the be, is like an ongoing concept. It's not like, okay, you got one day, imitate God, go, go do it. It's like, no, it's just like, there's so many rich analogies in this. Um, last hour when Leanne was up here singing, it was so cool to see her daughter, Annie, like in the aisles, like watching mom sing, like just, just riveted on her mom. I wonder if there's times at home where Annie's like, you know, like pretending like she's singing up here uh, with her mom. Or when Caleb was younger, like I, when I would mow, he had his little plastic mower. And so he'd be out there in the yard, you know, following dad around. Like you wouldn't expect though, like a two or three or four year old kid to like, totally imitate mom or dad, right? That's 
but, but it's so cool to see those first steps. And that's kind of the concept here. It's not, you're not going to get this imitating thing God down instantly. But, but as you continue to live in this family where God is your father who loves you, it's interesting. The beloved children, like that Greek phrase, was sometimes used for an only child. Like it described an only child. So, so there may be a nuance here where he's saying God is pouring his love on you as if you were the only child on this planet. I know we live like that sometimes, and I, but that's not true. It's that God, you know, is an infinite God in his love, but the amount of love he pours on us, it's as if we are the only kid he's got, and he's just, we've got his full attention, his full love, and it's a powerful concept. And so what's, what's so clear to me is that Paul really wants us to get this about the, the vastness of God's love for us. And I think I can get it because I've been a pastor for a long time. I've known God for a long time because I completely struggle with this concept that the creator of the universe really loves me like to, to that extent. Like Paul in chapter 3 said, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. Remember the, the height, the depth, the width, the love of God that we would comprehend that. And we just can't. Like I think we, we realize how undeserving we are, how, you know, how in the world could God do that? But Paul's like resistant, like just pushing into us, persistent. I mean, like I, you guys gotta get this. Like you are beloved children and God wants us to know that. I think God knows that it's hard for us to get our heads around that. And that's why I think one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that when you become a follower of God and become part of his family, he puts his Holy Spirit in you. And two of the Holy Spirit's roles are, Romans 5 says, he pours God's love into your heart. And Romans 8 says that he cries out from our hearts, Abba, Father, like Daddy, like God wants us to get this, that we are his beloved kids. We're in his family. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But here we are. And so he wants us to, in that context, be imitators of God. Like show this world what it looks like to be loved so deeply by the creator, all right? And I just got to stop and ask you, because I ask myself this a lot. If I really, really, really believed that God loved me like this, that the creator of the universe, what would my life look like? Like, how would I be different? How would I sleep better? How would I worry less? Like, just that's what Paul's driving us here to in this first verse is be imitators of God as his beloved children, all right? So then verse 2 gives us a little more specific. Well, how, how do we imitate God? What does this look like to reflect the love of God? And verse 2 uh, says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now walk in love. So the supreme standard of love throughout the New Testament, whenever there's a statement, and you've heard me say this a lot, if this is one thing you cling to from your knowledge of the New Testament, it's whenever the Bible says, this is love, it makes a beeline to the cross. Like this is the epic demonstration of love. Like in the family of God, the most momentous event that ever happened was the cross. Like the epic description of love for the family of God. If you say, well, what's this love like? It's an instant no-brainer. You point to the cross. That God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Like total sacrificial love. The sinless son of God had no right being on that cross. That was our cross. And he went there for us to pay for our sins because he is gracious and full of mercy. That is the best description of love that you'll ever see. 
It's undeserved. It's unmerited. Like, there's no way we deserve that to happen for us. It's the greatest expression of love that we will ever, ever see or ever experience. And God wants us to experience that as Holy Spirit is in us, reminding us of that, reminding us of what Jesus has done. And so, and so that's what it means to walk in love. Like, um, you know, love has so many definitions for people today, and people just throw that word around so lightly. But when a Christian says, I love you, we reflect the love of God for us. That is a sacrificial love, undeserved love that we have received from Christ. And so what that means is if we walk in that, then we will be known as those kind of people people who make sacrifices, who, who love at a cost, who put themselves aside to serve others and to help others. That's how we roll in this family. So we are so loved by God, we imitate our Father. Well, what does that look like? Well, we walk in love, and it's a love that is sacrificial love reflecting what Christ has done. We talked about this last week. We're givers, not takers. We are known for this kind of love. The family of God is known for sacrificial love. And it's so cool to read about the early church. I mean, they weren't perfect, but these were the men and women that actually heard uh, the teachings of Jesus. Some of these people saw that epic demonstration of love with Jesus on the cross. And then when they started doing church and they started living out these principles, walk in love, they were known for their acts of sacrificial love. They were famous for this. They cared for abandoned children who were left on the street, and it was often these early Christians that, that formed orphanages, or on the other end of the spectrum, when the elderly were just kind of abandoned, it was Christians that would come along and care for them. In times of epidemic, Christians were known for being on the front lines of serving and caring for the sick. In fact, the Emperor Julian, who was kind of an antagonist to Christianity, didn't like Christians. He kind of grumbled when he said, these ignoble Galileans, it was kind of a slang for Christians, they care not only for their sick, but for ours as well in times of epidemic and plague. And it's really been interesting with the COVID-19 thing going around. As, as a church, we've been trying to get, be ready to respond to whatever actions the state takes. We have to be ready to respond. And um, you guys, I have, I, I, we can fight about this, but I have one of the best administrators in the world, okay? And so I thought I was on top of it like a week or two ago when I said to Emily, um, hey, Emily, we ought to maybe start doing some looking around and seeing what other churches are doing. She said, on it, done. Like, and so she already showed me several churches she's been tracking. She already hopped onto some Iowa Department of Health webcasts. Like, she's already been on it. I go, sweet, good. So thanks for that. So but there's interesting things we're tracking. Uh, there's some churches in Singapore, for example, where kind of in the epicenter, of COVID-19, watching what they're doing. Some of them have canceled meeting in big gatherings like this, but they've continued to meet in homes, from home to home, praying together. And, and so uh, we've grabbed the, the concept of what if we were called to be the church without going to church? Like, how would we do that? And so it's so cool to see how brothers and sisters are doing that around the world. But it's so cool. Not only are they concerned about, can we still worship? But they're also concerned about, can we serve? And so like people in their church, like if they're being quarantined, uh, they're being resourced and people are bringing them food and things. And uh, so we're, we're taking notes like, hey, we want to be ready to do that as well. Another cool thing they're doing is that they are caring for the first responders. And so doctors and nurses and uh, ambulance drivers and all that, they're making sure that they're being provided for, their families are being provided for and prayed for. You talk about an amazing movement. So 
we're poised to do that. Like, we want to be ready. So, like, you know, when Benny gets up here and says, hey, fill out your card so we have your, you know, this would be a really good time to make sure we have your information because if some things start changing where we can't gather, it would still be cool to be able to broadcast messages, to stay in touch that way, but also to still be the church. Like, if you have needs, you're quarantined, you need somebody to run and get some food, we want to do that. You got a neighbor in need. Um, We're in touch with local authorities. Like, if there's some ways we can serve this community, we want to be the church. We want to be uh, known for uh, sacrificial love like this. And guys, something else to think about is if the economy continues to maybe stall or go down a little bit, if there's some work stoppages going on, we, we've got to remember, like some of us have maybe been able to afford to go and buy all the hand sanitizer, you know, or fill our carts with toilet paper, whatever it is that we're doing. Guys, there's some people in our city that can't even you know, they're struggling just to buy normal staples and samples, but you can imagine if there's some layoffs and hourly people not working, we just gotta have our ears open and our eyes ready to serve and love sacrificially, guys, in, in times, uh, not just like this, but at any time. But let's, let's be ready. We just wanted to know we're praying, we're not panicking. Heard an interesting t- statistic Friday that we just have passed the 20,000 death mark for influenza A and B. Like, whoa, I, you know, something that's kind of waking us up is I had no idea that 20,000 people were dying that. So, you know, are we overreacting or not? Don't know. We'll follow the directions of our legal authorities, but we want to be ready to serve and be the church, right? So again, just learning from our brothers and sisters around, around the world there. So Jesus said this to his followers. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And by this, all will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, that verse was in the Old Testament, except the disciple part, except Jesus said this is a new commandment. The new part of the commandment was loving as he loved us. He was foreshadowing the cross. The cross is the ultimate definition of love. Jesus said, I want you to love each other like that. And so Christians are called, that's how we're called to love each other. That's how we're called to love within our marriages and families. It's a sacrificial love. And that is what will distinguish us as being in the family of God, right? So we walk in love. Now, verse 3 to 6 appears to kind of take a sharp right turn. You go, Paul, what are you, what are you doing? You were just talking about love. But let me, let me try to explain this here, okay? Let me read the first couple of verses. Verses 3 and 4 says, uh, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let me unpack those words real quick. Sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. We get the word porn, pornography from that. It was a word that basically meant all sexual expressions outside of sex within a marriage between a husband and a wife. Okay, it was a general catch-all term. Jesus used it. Uh, it was used in other places in the New Testament. The word covetousness, a lot of times maybe you think of greed or something like that. Uh, covetousness in this context also had a sexual connotation to it, a, like an insatiable lust are wanting something or someone who's not yours, like in the Ten Commandments where it says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And that's the context here. So Paul's saying those are not proper among the saints. In verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, 
Let there be thanksgiving. So it's interesting. Like he's rolling us down the sacrificial love track. Like we're talking about Jesus and the cross. Then all of a sudden he's saying, but like in contrast, like you want to talk about what is the opposite of sacrificial self-giving love. Now let's start talking about sexual immorality. You go, wait, that's a huge switch. So here's the deal too, that these people that Paul is talking to lived in this city called Ephesus. And in the Roman Empire at that time, um, sexual restraint was kind of out the window. There were so many just, just doing basically whatever you wanted to do without restriction, whatever brought you pleasure, you would just go for it. In fact, even in the center, one of the things Ephesus was famous for was the temple to Diana, and a big part of worship there involved sex with temple prostitutes. Like, sex was in the worship services. The religious people were super you know, sexually promiscuous, and so that was the culture of Ephesus. And now, if you remember, as we've talked about this book, Paul is writing, this is a new church. Like, these are people who have just started following Jesus. And so now they're being interested to, a, I'm sorry, being introduced to a whole new sexual ethic. And so this passage is not a condemnation of the culture. This is a challenge to Christians. Like, if you are following Jesus, this is how we live. Like, and this is how we don't live. So we live lives of sacrificial love, but we do not live lives of sexual immorality. The opposite of self-giving love is sexual immorality, is what, is what he's basically saying here. So um, God, you know, Christians get a rap for this sometimes. Like, oh, Christians don't like sex, or Christians are such prudes, or Christians just say sex is dirty and evil, and you should save it for the person you love. Like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not the Christian sex ethic. Like, God is for sex. God loves sex. God created sex to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. In fact, you know, sometimes even that's thrown up in the air. Well, where do you get that? And how do you know for sure? And uh, it's the best place I like to go where you see that explained is to Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, uh, he was asked, the Jewish culture was much more conservative than the Roman culture. And so... Um, but even in that culture, it was starting to become liberalized where men were treating marriage very flippantly and hopping from one marriage to another to another. And so somebody asked Jesus a question about what do you think about this kind of emerging divorce culture of just kind of discarding woman after, and that would have been a chance for Jesus to kind of you know, reset. Like, well, you know, the Old Testament said this, but I say, actually Jesus just went right back to the Old Testament. And he talked about marriage, one man, one woman, and, and sex in that context. And, uh, just kind of nailed it right there. And, and so there's other places you can look and see, okay, what, what did the Bible really teach about sexuality? And I just love going right to Jesus because if the one who gave his life for us, the one who loves us, the one who says, I came to give you life and life to the full, if that one says, this is what sex is, I'm gonna trust him. I may not understand it. I may not like it, but that's, that's what he's calling his people to. This is where you will be blessed. Because it's within the context of the confines of, of biblical sexuality, there is complete trust. There is a complete giving. Uh, there is sacrificial love between husband and wife. You're going to see that taught in just a few verses later in chapter 5. Like That's the context because God also knows that sex is such a powerful uh, dynamic to us that if it is taken out of those confines of trusted sacrificial love, it can be incredibly damaging uh, to people. And it's incredibly dishonoring to his name and to his plan, all right? And so 
Um, you don't have to look very far to see where that is happening in our culture. It's interesting with the sexual revolution where a lot of the restraints of sexuality were just kind of dropped and people were living more like they did in Ephesus. Do whatever you want, whatever you feel. You'll be more fulfilled, be more satisfying. It's like the exact opposite is happening in our country today. And even just recently, studies about, obviously, marriage has been kind of dropping, number of people getting married, uh, percentage of people. But also, you ask questions like, well, how often are people having sex today? Those numbers are dropping. And how satisfying are people saying their sexual experiences are? And those numbers are dropping as well. It's like what the revolution is promising is not delivering. Guys, if you want to, there's a great uh, book that kind of summarizes kind of a current trend of sexuality versus what the Bible says. The guy's name is Glenn Harrison. Glenn with a Y, okay, Harrison. The book is called A Better Story. You can also, he gives talks on YouTube, um, but he has a great job of laying out the narrative today that our, and what our culture is promising in the realm of sexuality. But then let's look back at, at what God's story has always been and why God's story is a better story. But, you know, if we could just talk about this, one reason why is that uh, God sees how destructive uh, sex out of the bounds and context of marriage, out of the bounds of sacrificial love can be. What sex then turns into is people using each other, using people for my pleasure. I'm using your body. I'm using your attention. I'm using your admiration for my pleasure. And God um, wants us so strongly to avoid sexual sin that he says, don't even joke about it. Like, don't, don't make light of it. Don't drop your guard, even by just kidding around about it, that you're going to be more prone just to embrace sexual sin and fall into it. And so, and it gets a little more intense here. You can look at verses five and six, where, where he says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, and he uses the same words again, sexually immoral, immoral, impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with such, with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because these are big concepts. No inheritance, wrath of God. And again, people might look at this and go, what is going on? Like, why is God so angry? And again, if you're new to the whole, you know, sexual ethic of Christianity this morning, uh, I, again, I refer you to the book, and I'm going to email out some stuff tomorrow morning. But here's the deal. God knows when his boundaries for sex are violated, people are hurt. Uh, sex misused, people get hurt. So in our realm today, in our culture today, where porn is running rampant, what that does, uh, male or female, is it, is it drops your respect for the opposite gender, whoever it is, the object of your gratification in pornography. And so most of the time that's women and the view of women gets, gets degraded. And so it's, I don't think, an accident that in our culture today, one out of three or one out of four women will be abused sometime in their lifetime. Like that is horrific. And God sees that and that makes God angry. If that did not make God angry, we'd have big concerns about our God. The wrath of God comes upon the misuse of sexuality because of it, the way it hurts people. And you can talk about child trafficking. You can talk about um, sexual abuse with children. Like just, oh, just the rampant destruction of people's lives that come when this, what's intended to be a beautiful gift is misused and is used in other contexts than within the context of sacrificially loving husbands and wives, right? And so, and so I gotta clarify something here too. Oh, this is a tough one. Hang with me, okay? So it just threw down a pretty strong statement too about you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And so I want you to remember 
that throughout the book of Ephesians, and in this particular context, he's talking about who you were and now who you are, okay? So to be in the inheritance of the kingdom, to be in God's family, that was all grace. Like all we offered God was sin and brokenness, okay? Uh, in this room this morning, if we got super honest, I would doubt there'd be anybody that was, has been flawless in the area of sexual immorality, okay? So, uh, but we could take that survey on other areas too. Honesty, uh, how you've treated others, how you've used your tongue. Like we all epically fail before a holy God, right? And so the only way we become heirs, have an inheritance of the kingdom of God is because God is gracious and merciful. Nobody qualified, right? And so, and even as he brings us into his family, God doesn't say, okay, remember, doesn't say imitate me perfectly now. Like that's no become imitators. Like you're gonna grow in these areas. And so imagine these brand new believers in Ephesus in a world that had a totally different sex, sex ethic now brought in to the Christian family. God's speaking to them. Like there should be no immorality among us. Just like he did at the end of chapter four, he said, stop stealing from each other. Like there were thieves in that church. So, and so I'm trying to say this. If you struggle with sexual sin that does not kick you out of the family of God, but I would say this. Um, there are times where Paul challenges people to examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith. And so here's, here's maybe a good place to start with that. Like we have just heard that sexual sin really angers God. God's not a God who's quick to anger. And when he gets angry, it's for the right things. It's spot on. And the misuse of sex is a huge deal to God. So now if we hear this this morning and we, we say we're parts of God's family and that we're beloved children, we're in the family of God, we want to imitate our father, then we hear this makes our father angry. Okay, that could take us in two places. Number one, that could get our attention and go, it's a bigger deal than I've been treating it. God, I am so sorry. Like, I, help me. I want to be there. Let's go. Help me grow. You know, and so we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But here's where I would ask you to be in concern is if you hear that and go, it's not that big a deal. Just, I guess that's just the old-fashioned part of God. I'll just go with the God loves me part of God and we'll be good to go. Like, I would be super concerned about you and do you really understand? Like, he takes us as we are and sin is a big deal and he forgives us. Once we're in the family though, I just think we gotta, we gotta honor the things that God honors and love the things that God loves, hate the things that God hates and realize that even that is within the context of grace. So I could demand perfection but he's gonna, you know, I've heard it said this way. When you're in the family of God, you're not gonna be sinless. But the longer you're in that family, you're gonna see yourself sinning less because of the love of God, because of the help of the Holy Spirit. And a couple of the things I'm gonna share in a little bit. So, and so this is a big deal to God, right? And it's so interesting where it's placed. It's the complete opposite of being in the realm of sacrificial love. God's intention for marriage is sacrificial love. God's intention for sex is to be placed in that very safe and secure place of a husband and wife who are sacrificially devoted to loving one another, all right? Let me, let me give you one tip to help in that, that battle of sexual purity. It's not an easy battle, all right? So it was back in the verse where he mentioned, like, don't let there be any filthiness or foolish talk. He says, rather, giving of thanks I, I can promise you, I feel bad for the giving of thanks statements in the Bible because I think so many times we just fly right by them. They are so strategically placed. You should look those up sometimes. Where did God say, give thanks? But in this one, I think it is so spot on being there. 
Because I think that one of the best ways to cut the legs out of greed, lust, coveting, is to be grateful. And so let me just give you an application as married couples. Like, like you should have a list of the things that you just so appreciate and love about your spouse. And just rehearse those regularly. Because it is so easy when you become discontent and forget how good you got it, that your eyes can start wandering and you can start comparing. Dang it, just keep, keep your focus on how good God has been to you with the marriage he has given you. And I say the same thing to the unmarried here this morning. I carried an unmarried card for 30 years in my life. So I've been in the club, not there now, but I know those battles. And sometimes it's easier to look at the other side and go, oh, if I only had, or I wish I had. Like the same thing is true there. Make a list of like, how has God been good to you? We, at the end of our lives, we will never say to God, God, you ripped me off. God, you never came through. You weren't good. It's like, no, no, no. The, the dumbest times of our lives are we're going to forget what God has done for us and we're going to try to find our own pleasure and that's where we get in a big heap of hurt, right? So it's so small, but it's so powerful. Be grateful. Give thanks. It'll just cut the legs out from lust, from greed, okay? So one other thing. Yeah, I got to keep rolling here. So but the next, the next thing's gonna really help us with all this is the last section. We're not gonna have time to do the whole section, but looking at seven through 14, the, the banner over those verses, the, the next command as God's loved children is to walk as children of light. Okay, to walk as children of light. Verse seven, therefore do not become partners with them uh, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He's reminding them of what he taught us in chapter two, that we were dead in our sins, like we were living like the rest of the world, like we were just totally ignoring God and his ways. But then God was rich in mercy. God made us alive together in Christ. Now we are saved. We are in Christ. We are in God's family. Now there's a whole new way to live. And so this concept, the metaphor of light, was one that Jesus loved to use. It was in the gospel of John, but light basically means the truth. Like, how do you really live this life? What is this life all about? And so now we are to walk as children who have been given the light. This is what life looks like. This is how life is best lived. Walk as children of light. I don't know if you saw the moon this morning. Maybe you had a better chance of it because the clock's moved up an hour. But when it was setting, like, it was awesome this morning. Big, super bright, like, dark sky, but just huge moon. You know, it's really cool when we think about the moon. It's just a rock. Like, it's not, there's not like a generator in there blasting out light and all that. It's just a stinking rock. And so, it, but it's so brilliant because it's reflecting the light of the sun. And when you put it in the backdrop of a dark sky, it just shines out. And so Jesus, or, or Paul is saying here, like, when you walk in the light, man, you just, sh- you just shine out. You're just reflecting what God has taught you. And, and, and you're living in in the light. And so verse 11 uh, says this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Let me just ask a quick question. Whose sin are we exposing here? And I would answer that this is our sin that we're exposing here. I think in 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that we don't judge the outsiders that God is their judge. John 16 tells us one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of their sin, right? 
We do a hor- we're horrible Holy Spirits. Like as soon as we start going pointing fingers and telling other people how wrong they are, it's like, mm, let's, let's, let's use another strategy. The other strategy is this. What if we exposed our sin, like the sins within our own lives, and then speaking to a church family here, what if you guys exposed uh, the sin of each other here for each other? Like that's one of the gifts we can give to each other in love is that when we see things going wrong or hear you saying things the way you shouldn't be saying, that we're gonna be there to speak the truth in love. Have you ever had like, I don't know, you had, maybe you had a big old honking salad at lunch, right? And so, you I mean, you just chowed that thing. And then you went and you saw so many people that afternoon. You're everywhere, you're hanging out and all that. You get home at night and there's just a big old hunk of lettuce, like right there on the corner of your mouth or whatever it is. And you go, what? Like, how come, and you're thinking of all the people you saw, it's like, how come nobody said anything? Like, how come, you know, you might even remember, that's why they were laughing a little bit, or that's why they were, you know, like, that would just bug you. But it's the same deal, like, not just with something stupid like lettuce on the lips, but, but what about just how you're treating people? You're a little bit obnoxious, you're a little bit proud, you kind of snap at people, and nobody's telling you that. Like, what, what Paul's saying is, like, make sure that our sins are exposed, that they're brought to the light, that we line up how we're acting with the light and the truth of God's word, and, and we deal with that. Like, we help each other with that. And so, if there is, this is a, this, <laughs> there's a lot in us that doesn't want this, you know, but that's one of the beauties of what we try to do in getting each other into community groups where we can get close enough with each other so that we can see what's going on in each other's lives and then speak truth into each other's lives. And it's as we expose our sins and bring them to the light and have those sins dealt with that we become better reflectors of God's light, right? So, so we expose our sin. We get in places where um, we ask people even, would you confront me? Would you say something to me? Would you pray for me? Would you, and even to that place on some of the very personal issues we've just talked about, would you ask me about my sexual purity? Would you ask me about what I did on my date that night? Would you ask me about what I'm doing on the internet? Would you ask those hard questions, inviting people in so that we are exposing our own sin? And uh, let me just say a word here about exposing the sins of the world. So what happens then is that as we walk in the light, God uses like that moon reflecting the light of the sun, God uses us in a dark world to put a whole different way on display, a whole different way of doing sexuality, of doing family, of doing life. In fact, in the Roman Empire, it's interesting that the early church really took off and grew. And it wasn't initially because of the doctrine or the teachings. Like a lot of this, what? Jesus died and rose again. What? Like they wouldn't get that stuff. But then what they could not deny was how Christians were loving each other and were loving them. And it was even the beauty of seeing Christian marriage where wives and women were esteemed and held up and men were committed to their wives. And then to see how kids would be raised in that and would flourish in that. And there was a real draw to Christianity by seeing God's standards put on display. That's how we expose the sins of the world is that we, uh, like Jesus said, put your, uh, let your good works shine before men so they give uh, praise to the Father who is in heaven. That is our role. So here's what's so, what's so key in this. We're not better than them. We're not better. We've just been loved by God, right? We didn't qualify for the family of God. We were sinners, rescued by grace, now loved by God in this amazing family. So we put his life on display. We serve, we befriend, we love, we enter into dialogue, uh, but we do not condemn, right? The outsider, we expose our sins, 
expose my sin, but we don't do that with the outside world. I made a montage, this is the last thing, I made a montage of things that I remember hearing over the last couple years as people became Christians. Like what was it about the friend who led you to Jesus or what was it about the Christians that you noticed? Because none of these are gonna sound earth shattering to you, but just hear some of these. Well, I noticed that their language was different or they always seemed joyful. They worked hard, but they always had time to help me around the office, always had a positive attitude. They stood up for somebody when they weren't around. They didn't swear. They spoke so highly of their wife or husband. They, they, I could tell they loved their church. I could tell they liked reading the Bible. And I just, I mean, those sound like such small things, but that's you putting the life of what it means to be loved by God and be in his family and be walking in his light. And that's what will draw people, expose their sin and their needs so that they will come and experience the same love of God that we have, all right? So, well, I threw a bunch at you this morning. And so I want to give you a couple minutes to just, okay? And there's going to be a slide up on the screen. But I'd like you to pick one of these and just spend a couple minutes with God. And let me add one to that. Maybe one question to ask this morning is, is am I in this family? Like, am I in the family of God? Can I, do I know for sure that I am God's beloved child? And can I make that clear that that starts with you just admitting you're a sinner and that you need the grace of God, that you need that Jesus died for you on the cross. So you put your faith in Jesus and that brings you in to this family. Okay, that might be what you sit and pray about. Okay, but here's a couple other things. What if you just, what hit you this morning was this whole love of God thing? No, I don't have my head around that. And so maybe this is a couple of moments for you just to thank God and praise him for his love for you. Ask him to help you understand his love. Um, maybe it's uh, walking in love. So maybe taking this whole challenge of sexual purity in a new way. God, I didn't, I just have not thought about this in a while. This really angers you. I want to I wanna live um, in love like you say too. So, so maybe it's the time to get honest and serious about that. Or maybe you're aware of areas in your life where you're more of a giver than a, a taker than a giver. And so you ask God to help you be sacrificial in your love. And maybe it's this whole walk in light concept. Like God, who are some people that I can invite into my life to help expose the sin of my life so I can grow stronger, okay? So I threw a ton at you. Why don't you pick one of those right now and just, just pray and just interact with God about those things. Talk to him about them. Ask him for help. Praise him for his love.